Luke chapter 1 will be our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 5 through 25. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, every story, every historical account features a cast of characters, right? The cast is usually diverse in role and character. There are the protagonists and the antagonists. 
There's usually one character, however, that rises to the top. One character featured above all the others. And usually there's that, there's that one main role that if that role was absent, was left out, the entire story would collapse in on itself. So the main character in Charles Dickens' classic David Copperfield is, well, David Copperfield. Without him, the story wouldn't exist, right? What would the, the kids' movie favorite Mary Poppins be without the famous nanny by that name? She is the story. Well, we have begun what, Lord willing, will be many studies together as a church in the gospel account written by Luke. Last week, we looked at Luke's introduction to his historical account where he makes it clear he's writing truth about Jesus and Jesus' work and Jesus' ministry. And today, in the passage Lee has just read for us, we see that historical narrative get underway. And it begins with this cast of characters. Zachariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Gabriel the Angel. But who's the main character in this drama? Who emerges as the role without which the entire story would collapse? Well, dear church, Throughout this passage, and indeed throughout Luke's gospel, and indeed throughout God's word, we see again and again and again that God himself is the main actor in the story of history. In fact, he's more. He's the author of history. Far from being this distant deity that winds up history and then lets it play out on its own, the God of the Bible, the the true God of history, is intimately involved in every facet of our existence. And we see that clearly in our passage this morning. So with our time together, church family, let's see three basic truths about this God from this passage. Three things. First, God works in hopeless situations. God works in hopeless situations. So grateful for that. Second, God works his salvation plan. God works his salvation plan. And then third and finally, God works by his word. God works by his word. And I pray that through this passage this morning, our understanding of God's sovereignty over the entire scope of history and then into our very personal lives would hit us home afresh and give us this renewed sense of awe and worship that this mighty Lord is our Lord. So first, church, God works in hopeless situations. Look there in verse 5. Luke places us immediately in historical context. He says that the historical account he's communicating here begins during the reign of King Herod. And we know from history that Herod ruled from about 37 to 4 B.C., about 33 years. And Luke is picking up his story here near the end of that reign of King Herod. So we're talking around 4 B.C. here. And it's into this historical context then that Luke introduces us to the first characters in the cast. A devout elderly couple a man and woman steeped in religious devotion and righteousness before God. You see there in verse 5 that this guy named Zechariah is a priest. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth who hails from a, a priestly family as well. 
In verse Luke, in verse 6, Luke's, Luke makes sure we realize that this couple is to be admired. He says they are righteous, that they keep the law of the God of Israel. All is set up for us to see this couple as exemplary. They serve the Lord. They're lifelong God followers. And so with that in mind then, verse 7 hits us like a train. It's so abrupt, Luke says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Childlessness is a very difficult road to travel. Perhaps some of you have experienced it or are, are experiencing it currently. It's unspeakably hard. And it was no different back then, church. Childlessness back then was seen as an incredibly hard personal trial, but even more so than today, childlessness in that culture was seen not nearly personally, but as a social humiliation. Zachariah and Elizabeth, servants of the Lord, had to deal with humiliation and hardship for decades. No doubt placing this this shadow over their lives. Yet, yet it is this couple that God intends to use at this stage of salvation history to bring redemption for the world. In these very verses, God is about to make a barren womb the birthplace of hope for his people. Church, lest we skim over this detail, let's stop and recognize that this is actually exactly how God works. This story is reminiscent of several in the Old Testament. So you may remember Abraham and Sarah and the barrenness and age that seemed to prevent God's promise from being realized in them. You may remember Elkanah and Hannah and the hardship Hannah suffered in her childlessness before the Lord gave her Samuel. Remember her in the temple in 1 Samuel, just weeping her eyes out, asking the Lord to answer her prayer? You may remember Manoah and his wife, who remains unnamed, who in their barrenness were given a prophet named Samson, who would deliver God's people. You may remember Jacob and Rachel and the trials Rachel suffered before the births of Joseph and Benjamin. This is no new idea in Scripture. This is a theme in God's Word. God makes a practice of using impossible situations in broken people to bring about saving power. That's the way God is. That's the way your God operates. Why? To make clear to us and to the world that his plan to save cannot be thwarted. To make clear to us that it is not ever our power or our ingenuity that can save us, but only and always his power and his grace alone. This is good news, Christian. Do you feel at times unable to be used by God? Do you sense great discouragement as you see all too clearly yet again your weakness and inadequacy? You feel unworthy to be the focus of this God of the universe. Do you think 
especially in church, when we talk about the, the vision of the church and the spread of the gospel, do you always think, oh, somebody else could do that? Certainly, nobody could be spiritually benefited in any serious way by me. Dear soul, be refreshed and encouraged as you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. This godly couple pursuing God and suffering every step of the way with no understanding why. God uses people like that. He uses people living in hopeless situations with great weakness, and he uses people like that, people like you and people like me, to make his power known. As we'll see in a few weeks when the angel speaks to Mary, even in hopeless situations, nothing is impossible with God. Church, we see this most clearly in the gospel, don't we? The plan of salvation that the Lord is starting to reveal even more here at the outset of the Gospel of Luke is a path of redemption for hopeless sinners. Each one of us in our sin and our denial of God is condemned rightly under his judgment. That judgment is what we are worthy of. And that judgment is a hopeless situation. But here in this passage we see hope-filled news. A Savior is coming, and he's coming not, as Jesus will say later in this gospel, not for those who are healthy, but those who are sick. He's coming for you. He's coming in the flesh through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he's coming, Jesus is, to take our hopelessness on himself, to suffer divine judgment in our place so we can have this hope that remains unshakable, immovable, If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here because we want to communicate to you this is the good news we celebrate. This holy God condescending into our mess and taking that mess on himself, giving us hope, new life, eternal. If you will repent of your sin, the sin that estranges you from that God, and you come to him in humble repentance and trust, you will be saved. You will be given hope that you have not tasted yet. You will be saved. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more after the service. That's why we gather. And church, God has always had a plan to bring hope and salvation to sinners. That's our second point this morning. God works through hopeless situations, and then God works his salvation plan. Church, the truth of the cosmic sovereignty of God drips from every verse in this passage. Uh, The echoes that we just talked about, the echoes of the Old Testament remind us that God remains in control at this stage in history, just like he was generations, hundreds, thousands of years before. And we see here he's bringing something new. Salvation's on the way. That's why he's sending this little boy who will be named John. Look there in verse 8. Luke has introduced Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now he kind of zooms in on what would have been undoubtedly one of the highlights of Zechariah's life, ministering in the temple. So at the time, there were uh, 24 different priestly divisions. 
in Israel. Uh, so that roughly makes it so that each division would serve one, uh, twice a year because each division would serve a week at a time. But due to the number of priests and the, 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 not only the number of divisions, but the number of priests in each division, not all would have the opportunity to do everything they could want to in the temple, especially offer incense. So that's why in verse 9, Zechariah is chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There's a big team. They had to find out who would represent the team. Zechariah is chosen by lot. This is his big shot. This is a big deal for Zechariah. Perhaps he would go back home after this and be like, Elizabeth, guess what? Right? Worshippers pray outside in verse 10. He enters to complete this priestly task. It's, it's probable that he would have stayed in the temple for not too long of a time, and then the practice was to come out and give a benediction to the worshipers outside. Right? So they're waiting for him. It's not the way it works out. Look in verse 11. Zechariah is delayed, and for good reason. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, this is the first glimmer in Luke's gospel that the author, Dr. Luke, is giving us kind of a glimmer of, of, of something new happening. It's been generations since God has last spoken to his people. And now an angel appears. God's plan of salvation looks to be getting kicked into high gear. And Zechariah is about to hear some phenomenally amazing news. But in the meantime, he's freaked. Right? An angel is standing before him. If you've read any other parts of the Bible, you'll know that that reaction's pretty standard for when a messenger of God shows up. This is no precious moments type figurine angel. Zechariah is scared out of his wits. Yet, there in verse 13, the angel reassures him. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We're not exactly sure what prayer Gabriel is referring to here. Perhaps it was kind of the ongoing, decades-old prayer for a son. But Zechariah is well, and Elizabeth are well beyond childbearing age. Perhaps they just kind of sat in God's will in that. I think it's more possible that Zechariah at that time in the temple had been praying for the redemption of Israel. And the angel comes and says, that prayer is answered. Salvation's coming, Zechariah. Believe it or not, it's going to come through the barren womb of your wife. God's at work, Zechariah. The angel's bringing good news. He says in verse 14 that this will cause gladness to fill the hearts of Zechariah and his wife. This boy named John will be great before the Lord. He will be devoted to God in a special way. That's the reason for abstinence from wine. That's the reason for being filled with the Holy Spirit. This will be a special, consecrated boy. Verse 16 gives us his role in the salvation plan. He says, the angel says, John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Those words strike you as familiar? A little bell ringing? Where have we heard those words recently? We heard them from our sister Jane at the outset of our service. As she read from Malachi chapter 4, there the prophet speaks of the coming day of the Lord. He says, behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. The angel couldn't make the connection more explicit. He's saying that God is speaking to his people again. And get ready, the Lord's coming. And church, we will, we could spend a lot of time talking about John's ministry here, but we're going to have the chance to do that again in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. For now, just notice God has not forgotten his people. His control over history has not wavered. His plan is proceeding just as he designed it to proceed. This Elijah-like prophet has come as promised. And this will all take place through the miracle pregnancy of a barren womb. It's amazing. Even the smallest details in this passage, like like that simple, quick detail, the drawing of the lot for Zechariah to enter the temple, even that is from the hand of a sovereign God. Do you recall Proverbs 16, 33? The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Church, the main actor in this story is God. He's running everything according to plan. The the tempo of redemptive history may be picking up in speed, but the conductor of the symphony has always had the baton in hand. He's orchestrating everything according to his will. So one New Testament scholar writes, the announcement of John's birth begins a series of great events that ring through the corridors of time and eternity as God's salvation comes to fruition. We're getting a glimpse here, church family, of all history coming together. God has brought his people to this point, and he's sending John the Baptist by purposefully impossible means to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, who will bring God's redemption not only to Israel, but then through the, to the whole world. This is God's sovereignty in all its glory. This is God's sovereignty exercised by his word. And that's our final point this morning. God works in hopeless situation. God works in redemptive history, and God works by his word. And we see that in the response of Zechariah to this angel in verse 18. Do you look there. He says, um, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And at first it seems like a reasonable question, right? I mean, perhaps you would have said the same thing. Those years of childbearing are are far gone. I mean, how is this going to happen? I just want to get some more details. Mary's going to ask kind of the same gist of a question about her impossible pregnancy later on in the chapter. But verse 19 reveals there's more going on here than meets the eye. Gabriel's response shows us that Zachariah doesn't really believe the angel's word. He's asking for a sign. He's asking for proof. At the, at the 
root of his question is unbelief. You see that in verse 19. Look how the angel replies. A little scary. You think being afraid of the angels of presence at first, you wouldn't want to try him, but go Zechariah, right? Listen how Gabriel responds. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel Gabriel is saying, you want proof? You're going to get it. Zechariah, you're going to get a sign, and it's going to be the discipline of your God. Zechariah doubts the word of the sovereign God, and so his own words are taken away from him until he sees the word of God proven true. It's an ironic discipline. God holds the remote, and he puts Zechariah on mute. Perhaps that seems harsh to you this morning. But it's God's loving discipline to his priest. His word is to be trusted. His word will not fail, and Zechariah will feel that. For the next nine months or so, he will be silent while he sees God's word proceed. He will watch while God works. He will wait while God fulfills. So there in verse 21, it gets a little awkward. Zechariah reemerges, presumably to give this benediction to the worshipers, and he can't. No words come out. Everyone's confused about this at first, but then they understand, oh, something's happened. Zechariah has had an encounter with God. And so we're left with the priest traveling back to his hometown after a tour of duty he could have never seen coming. That's not quite the end of the story. Look in verse 24. There we see the second of two responses to this work of the Lord. And it's the response of Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth. Luke records how she does indeed fulfill the word of Gabriel, conceives miraculously in her old age. But she keeps to herself for the first five months of pregnancy. And we're not exactly sure why she does that. There was no kind of law at the time, even in Israel, for women to do that. But verse 25, I think, gives us a clue. She hides herself and she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She doesn't want to show herself until her pregnancy is visible, until people start seeing the baby bump. Because she wants it to be shown that the Lord has indeed removed her humiliation and done a miracle. Church, it's kind of the tale of two responses. Zachariah and his wife. Sure, Elizabeth had the added benefit of actually seeing her stomach start to change. But Zachariah had seen an angel. Come on, right? So it's beneficial for us to see kind of these two stark responses to the word of the Lord. Zechariah disbelieves and is disciplined. Elizabeth conceives and says, this must be God. She believes. 
Church, even though we have been given new life in Christ through his death for our sin, this side of heaven, we will struggle, I think, at the root of all our sins with unbelief. Does God really mean what he says? Can he really come through on what he has promised? Because at times, God's plan, when he chooses to reveal it to us, seems not only unreasonable or impossible, but downright undesirable. He gives us trials on purpose. He works through our weakness on purpose. But take the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth here to heart, church. You can trust the word of the Lord. You can trust his plan. So Christian, are you wrestling with God this morning? Are you falling into the trap of believing your plan will prove to be better than his? That your word will be more dependable than his? Repent. Repent of trying to take his place as the God of the universe. And trust in him. As an aside, this is one of the good reasons or one of the reasons, it's a good practice to write down what the Lord is doing in your life. Perhaps, I know many of you have that practice in your daily life, but I'd encourage those of you who even think it's not really for you to find some way to journal the ways God has challenged you, the times he has felt distant from you, the times he has shown you then that he's in control. If you're not the writing type, pull up a word doc. Document the ways God is working. Because in the moment, you can easily distrust and disbelieve his promises like Zechariah. But as you look back at his track record in your life, in Zechariah's life 2,000 years ago, in the life of Israel, in the plan of God's vast salvation, you will be constantly reminded that he has never failed and he will never fail. Church, God is the main actor in Luke's account. He's the author of history. And in these brief 21 verses that Lee read for us, we see him everywhere. He grants Zechariah and Elizabeth the trial of childlessness. He controls a lot that brings Zechariah into the temple that day. Probably a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. He sends his angel Gabriel with his word to his priest. He will fill John with the Holy Spirit so his people are prepared for his Savior. He brings about life from the womb of Elizabeth. And so as the wheels start to turn more visibly in his plan of redemption, God is the one. God is the one bringing life from barrenness, praise from mute lips, a prophet after years of silence. He's bringing salvation to sinners, light into darkness, hope into despair. He's doing it. If this is what God is like then, if this is what he does, what will you trust him with today? Will you continue to trust him with sort of that vague sense of I'm just going to pray, but I'm actually going to do this on my own. We continue to trust him with the easy stuff that you actually don't really care about. You think he'll be interested in, kind of like holiness. 
Or will you stop withholding the places in your life you cannot trust him with? They're too precious. And trust him with those things. Your health, your kids, your finances, your reputation, your hopes for the future. Will you go to him and say, Lord, not only do I trust you, but I entrust these things to you. You do with them whatever you want. I give my life into your hands. You are worthy of all my hope because you are sovereign. As we'll sing in a moment, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. He alone is in control. The powers of hell and the schemes of man have nothing on Jesus. And he's given himself for you. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Our Lord, forgive us for so often living like we are the main actor on stage. Like, yeah, we'll pray, but when push comes to shove, we get to control our futures. You alone are sovereign, O God. We humble ourselves beneath your mighty hand. Use us. Use us however you will. Thank you that you have given us your son. And so you will not withhold any other good thing from us. Our trust is in you, Lord. Our trust is in Christ alone. Amen.